Discovering Mars, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Humans have been discovering Mars for at least 5,000 years. The mission continues, and though the flow of data and facts has vastly accelerated in the last half century, the Red Planet's mysteries still haunt us, just as they did the ancient Babylonians. William Sheehan and Jim Bell have written a book that traces this entire history. It's terrific, and so is my conversation with the authors that you'll hear in a couple of minutes. You'll also get your chance to win their book when Bruce sends us out past Neptune for this week's What's Up Space Trivia Contest. As I prepared this week's show, we learned that launch of the James Webb Space Telescope has been pushed back a few more hours. It's now set for the very early morning of December 25th, Christmas Day, at least for those of us in the Americas and Europe. Planetary Society Editorial Director Jason Davis has prepared a complete guide to the launch. You'll find it at planetary.org. Go JWST! Have you seen the mesmerizing, awe-inspiring video taken by the Parker Solar Probe as it flew through the sun's corona? It is one of the most spectacular space videos I've ever witnessed. Our CEO, Bill Nye, worked with some of my colleagues to do it justice in a new video. It's on all our channels and at planetary.org video. Then there's our newsletter, The Downlink, where you'll learn about an exciting find by the ExoMars Trace Gas Orbiter. The spacecraft has detected large amounts of hydrogen along the floor of the Vallis Marineris Canyon. It probably means there's water down there in the soil, or at least water-rich material. Might be a good place to homestead someday. There's much more at planetary.org downlink. You know Jim Bell. The Arizona State University professor has written bestsellers, including Postcards from Mars. Jim is principal investigator for Mastcam Z, the sharp-eyed 3D zoom camera that's atop the Perseverance rover's mast. And that barely scratches the surface of his past and present planetary science activity. Jim also served as president of the Planetary Society Board of Directors for many years. He has now teamed up with retired psychiatrist and longtime historian of astronomy and space, William Sheehan. Sheehan has written many books, including one in 1996 that this new work updates extensively. The full title is Discovering Mars, A History of Observation and Exploration of the Red Planet. You'll hear me call it monumental. That's not just because it's big. The book is something of a monument to the thousands of scientists and proto-scientists who have looked up in wonder at that flickering, red, wandering star. Here's what Bill Nye says about the book. This is a detailed history of exploration, to be sure, but it's really about the passionate characters, the humans with their telescopes and robots, who have worked to know what goes on out there on this other world. As you read, remember, what we've discovered there over the last couple of centuries is amazing. What we'll soon learn about Mars will be astonishing. Bill is right. It's why I looked forward to joining Jim Bell in his ASU office a few floors up from where his Mascam Z team was working with the latest images to arrive from the rover. Bill Sheehan couldn't join us in person, so I put a microphone in front of Jim's computer speaker and dove in. Bill and Jim, 
thank you so much for joining us on Planetary Radio and for this outstanding book that every Mars lover or aerophile really ought to own. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having us, man. Yeah, it's great to be here. I already shared what Bill Nye has said about the book. Here's a quote from our friend Andy Chaikin, uh, the author of A Man on the Moon. Read and understand why we will never be done with Mars. And that belief, that, that wanting to believe in the canals of Mars and that we might just find somebody up there to welcome us, that is a theme that runs through this book, how belief sometimes got in the way almost, well, right from the start, of uh, the science, of the actual facts about the planet Mars. Jim, do you also see that thread? Yeah, absolutely. It, and it really starts with Bill taking the historical perspective. And, you know, part of this book is an update to uh, Bill's book from 96, 96 I want to say. Right? Yeah, the, right. The, the planet, planet Mars. Mars. Yeah. And and uh, there, a lot has happened uh, since then, of course, on the mission side. But a lot has happened on the historical side as well. Lots of research, lots of new photos and manuscripts uncovered, et cetera. And and so, yes, that thread of belief winds all the way through the historical side that Bill has researched so expertly. And, you know, it also runs through the spacecraft side, right? We wanted to believe that the ALH-84001 meteorite was, <laughs> you know, loaded with Martian microfossils. We Some people want to believe there are human faces uh, carved into the rocks of Mars, right? Uh, some people want to believe that we can do sample return in the next decade, right? And, you know, and so there, there's, yes, there's scientific facts. Yes, there's engineering reality. But yes, it's also a very human endeavor, this exploration of Mars. Bill, how did you get from that 1996 book, The Planet Mars, to uh, discovering Mars and this, this partnership with Jim Bell? Well, I think one of the things that happened to me about 1965, because that was also the year of Mariner 4, uh, which showed that uh, there weren't canals on Mars. Instead, there was this stark, barren, uh, crater-pocked terrain uh, that was revealed in those ra rather poor quality images. But they, they, you know, they were very gray, very bleak-looking. So um, one of the things that happened to me at that point was that I, I wanted to understand how uh, people, scientists, could have gotten it so wrong. You know, how, how did they end up going down this primrose path into the, this um, very uh, appealing but ultimately illusory world that they'd conjured for themselves. And uh, so, so a large part of um, my subsequent interest in the history of Mars uh, had to do with the way that the brain constructs a reality and then tests that constructed reality against uh, objective facts that we can find out whether it's with telescopes, spectrographs, thermocouples on Earth, or uh, spacecraft. And uh, so I kind of took that story uh, as, as of 1996 as far as I could, as someone who wasn't a trained planetary scientist. We'd only just uh, gotten to the Pathfinder landing at that point, and you know, Vikings were already starting to become a bit hoary in history. Mariner Nine was almost an antique uh, history. So uh, when I was approached uh, by the University of Arizona Press to do an update, 25 years had passed very quickly, I might add, and I was totally unprepared to um, take the story forward. I, I knew Jim 
uh, from many of his excellent books, and in particular, the amazing photography uh, that he has pretty much supervised and uh, implemented on the surface of Mars. Uh, so I approached uh, Jim, and very uh, generously, he agreed, uh, despite you know the fact that he's probably only sleeping four, four hours a night <laughs> now. Agreed to, to uh, turn that back to three hours a night and help to uh, bring this book up to date. Somehow we managed to do it, and it was a wonderful collaboration. I, I learned so much uh, by doing this. And as Jim said, a, a lot of the themes that started out really back in the time of the Babylonians, the Greeks, you know, where Mars was already attracting human attention because of its intense red color and its sort of manic movements through the sky. That continued right through the uh, the spacecraft era. And so I think even though, you know, there, there was some division of labor in terms of uh, writing the chapters, I think that the book really is pretty seamless in the sense that these same human themes continue right to the very end. Yeah, it's true. And I'll just add, Matt, it was just such a treat. I'm a total fanboy of Bill Sheehan, okay? <laughs> uh, when uh, when I was in grad school, it was Planets and Perception, and as a postdoc, the Planet Mars. These were some of my favorite books, and they were, they were impactful for me being a uh, early career professional astronomer, planetary scientist, learning you know, how to observe places like Mars through modern instrumentation, to have that context of the history leading up to it and to have the context of the psychology leading up to it. And, you know, I, I experienced that firsthand up on Mauna Kea for my thesis research, seeing Mars, the moon, other planets through lenses that were unprecedented. And so it, it became really easy to understand through great writing and perspective and psychological experience that Bill provides kind of what was going on historically. Bill, I, you probably don't know that for many, many years now I have called Jim Bell the Ansel Adams of Mars. Uh, but as you said, a fine writer as well. And uh, however the two of you worked out this this tag team arrangement, it is a beautifully written and monumental book, over 700 pages, including appendices, and I will note two of those appendices, one by a current colleague, Casey Dreyer, uh, talking about what we've paid to get to Mars, and then, of course, our, our good friend uh, who we admire so much, Emily Lakdawalla, who uh, provided another one of those. Yeah, great getting those appendices in there. I, I don't I don't think the whole calendar system and Mars timekeeping system and the, you know, the chronology uh, that is presented in the in the book. I don't think that's ever been published in one place like like this. And certainly haven't seen the great work that uh, you know Casey's work to to figure out the uh, the cost of all of this, and and greatly justified costs of all all this with references and resources and all that. That's certainly never been published in a book. It's been online, but here it is. You know, preserved in in paper. Uh, and, and of course, and Bill went out and got some great appendices from some of his colleagues as well on mm -hmm. Martian nomenclature and, and other uh, aspects of oppositions with, over history, et cetera. So it's partly it's a, it's a resource for this kind of information that it's all in one place maybe for the first time. I want to get back to the book. I think there are about 230 pages of humanity's relationship with Mars until you get to the first time we successfully visit there with, with Mariner 4. Bill, there are countless anecdotes about the scientists, the engineers, 
uh, the observers of Mars, how they did their work. They're also what may seem like uh, detours from the, the main narrative that turn out to be, at least in many cases, critical to understanding why some of the history happened the way it did. I had no idea that Giovanni Cassini and Christian Huygens were rivals in 18th century France. I mean, how fitting that eventually two spacecraft carrying their names would, you know, centuries later travel together to Saturn. And I should say that this book has a lot of the history, not just of our exploration and observation of Mars, but of the whole solar system. Jim? Yeah, it's true. And Bill Bill has done a masterful job of bringing that history, uh, which is, of course, extensive throughout astronomy more broadly, focusing it on planetary science and specifically Mars observations. You know, Bill, I went back and looked at the initial correspondence. Eight and a half years. It took us eight and a half years to get this done. Wow. Uh, Just between our own research and time commitments or other projects, et cetera. Part of it was, I think, we both worked really hard to fill the back of the book with extensive notes and references and details. People who want to go dive into the the Huygens uh, Cassini tiff, they can do that following, you know, some of Bill's own work and others, many others that he he cites in detail in the notes. So in that sense it's an academic work. It's not just of course we're trying to write for a, a more popular audience, but we're also writing for academic colleagues, students, mm-hmm. others trying to learn and come up to speed on, on the history, students of history, students of science history, students of science communication, Martians, you know, et cetera. <laughs> so I, I think that was p- partly what you're seeing is is uh, the result of that extensive research. It's not a blurb on the book, but uh, Bill Nye told me a few days ago that he thinks this is going to be the reference work for students of Mars uh, for a long time to come because it is so heavily researched and, you know, all those pages of footnotes. I got to mention one other anecdote, which I just love, Bill, and it has to do with Asaph Hall, who the discoverer of Mars's moons, Phobos and Deimos who was uh, still not a very well-paid astronomer, apparently, when he was working at the Naval Observatory. And one night, he received a a rather special visitor. Do you know the anecdote I'm talking about? I do indeed, yes. Uh, It's not not every night that uh, you're at the telescope and uh, uh, a very tall, thin man with a top hat (laughs) happens to wander in during the period when the Civil War is raging. <laughs> so if, if it were, what's my line, you would probably pick him up pretty easily. <laughs> and he just, he just wanted to see the moon, right? Yeah, yeah. And it, it just shows, you know, a friend of mine that worked at the U.S. Naval Observatory said that during the, and of course the vice president's residence is now on the grounds of the U.S. Naval Observatory. And none of the vice presidents uh, were interested except for Al Gore who used to come over regularly. So it just shows that um, somebody like Abraham Lincoln, despite all of the uh, the tensions uh, that he faced, the difficult decisions, the fact that he was uh, presiding over what what so far anyway is probably the most decisive period of American history, still found solace in going up to the dome and uh, spending a quiet evening looking at the moon. Wish we had a few more presidents who, you know, like make a side trip up the mountain at Mauna Kea. And to, uh, members of Congress, yes. governors, <laughs> mayors, yes, more the merrier. All right, we'll move forward. November 28, 1964, I did not know, was 305 years to the day since uh, Christian Huygens had sketched Certus Major from, from the uh, observatory he had in his father's house. 
pretty significant day. And I almost, Jim, began to think of it as two eras, before Mariner and after Mariner. Um, yeah, and that's, you know, those parts of the, the Mariner era chapters, I think Bill and I worked pretty closely on those. Um, it was, you know, the beginning of the, the spacecraft era. Of course, it was the beginning of the end of our telescopic understanding and the beginning of something special and that really getting to know the place. Uh, I think we were both you know, pretty delighted that the book came out right on the eve of the 50th anniversary of Mariner 9 going into orbit. And so there's all kinds of celebration happening this year, 50 years in Mars orbit, almost uninterrupted, well, certainly uninterrupted in terms of the spacecraft, almost uninterrupted in terms of the data. You know, we've discovered with NASA and other space agencies, this is how you get to know a place. You spend time there, spend time in that environment. You know, telescopic observers didn't have that luxury. You know, every couple of years you get an opposition. Some of them are good. Some of them are great. But those are only every 15 to 17 years. And you get a couple of months where you get this big 20, 25 arc second disc in your telescope. And then it's gone. Right. And then you're trying to follow it through the fuzzy murk of the atmosphere. And uh, so being there, those those great oppositions that are written about and cataloged in the book are the closest that that we could come to being there at the time. And so they were very lots of high stress, just like a rocket launch or a spacecraft landing. You know, we got we've got a couple of months. We've got to have this telescope system ready. Uh, we've got to hope for clear weather and all that just as just as much stress as today's modern exploration milestones. Bill, I'm going to go to you for what may be the last word, uh, and it is very nearly the last word in this book, Discovering Mars, A History of Observation and Exploration of the Red Planet, by you, William Sheehan, and Jim Bell, available from the University of Arizona Press. Here's the line right at the end. The most important thing we have gained from the exploration of Mars is the view Mars has given us of Earth. Could you expand on that? Well, I think the the uh, whole thing started with Apollo 8 and Earthrise, you know, in 1968. For the first time, humans were able to contrast the beautiful oasis of the, of the blue Earth rising over the stark, gray, barren surface of the moon. And uh, that view did mobilize people for a short period of time uh, before they sort of uh, retreated back into the you know, grandiosity of uh, that, that is uh, so, so much a part of our, our species. Uh, but just just the uh, fact that uh, we now have explored Mars to some extent and have been able to realize that uh, even though it looks that way, uh, when, when you see pictures of it, uh, it's not like the Arizona desert that you can just go out into with shirt, shirt sleeves and uh, uh, you, uh, quaff your favorite drink on the patio. I mean, it's it's a very stark environment. Uh, someone uh, said, actually, it was at, at a conference that uh, Jim and, and his colleagues put on at uh, uh, Arizona State, but uh, said that no matter how badly we screw up the Earth, it will still be infinitely more hospitable than Mars will ever be. So I think, I think ultimately, when you look back from, from the surface of Mars, and you see that Earth, beautiful blue, but not even the brightest planet in, in Mars' sky. Actually, Venus is brighter. Uh, and you see the Martian moons uh, frequently racing overhead, and they're brighter. And, uh, and then you realize, well, that little tiny bright object in the, in the sky of Mars is all that we have, at least now. 
Some would say a pale blue dot. Some would say. Well, I was trying to avoid that. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we, we never avoid that around here. Jim, Jim, do we go out there, at least in part, to find ourselves? Yeah, look, uh, Bill, Bill's right. You know, we, we, we explore uh, out there to learn about ourselves here. Everything we do in space exploration, I'm, I'm convinced, is going to make life on Earth better. Uh, if we figure out how to sustain ourselves as a species in the harsh vacuum of space or low-pressure environments like the surface of Mars or low-gravity environments like the surfaces of asteroids, if we figure out how to actually build settlements and structures and extend our civilization for real beyond this planet, that implies a mastery of sustainable engineering that is far beyond what we have in our capacity today. And if that has happened, then we are using that engineering to make life better here on our own planet. Historian Bill Sheehan and planetary scientist Jim Bell. Their book, Discovering Mars, is available everywhere. Bruce Betts is next here on Planetary Radio. There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Are you looking for a place to get more space? Catch the latest space exploration news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. Make sure you like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. Hi, I'm Jason Davis, Editorial Director for the Planetary Society. Did you know there are more than 20 planetary science missions exploring our solar system? That means a lot of news happens in any given week. Here's how to keep up with it all. The downlink is our new roundup of planetary exploration headlines. It connects you to the details when you want to dive deeper. From Mercury to interstellar space, we'll catch you up on what you might have missed. That's the downlink every Friday at planetary.org. Hey, guess what? It's time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Here's the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, Bruce Betts. Welcome back. Thank you. We got a lot of good stuff in the night sky. Let me dive right into it, Matt. Oh, good. Lots of nice holiday gifts. Go ahead. Yes, indeed. We'll start with the planet party still going on low in the West, getting lower. Don't miss the planet party with super bright Venus, lowest down, Saturn looking yellowish above it, and Jupiter looking really bright above that. And if that weren't enough, Mercury joining the party, although, you know, again, everything is getting pretty low but Mercury will actually be pretty darn close to Venus, but much dimmer. We also still have Comet Leonard, which is in the same part of the sky, but very much challenged by the glow of sunlight. So it's tough. It will be easier for our Southern Hemisphere listeners to see it, but it's still going to take binoculars. Coming up, January 2nd and 3rd, peaking are the Quadrantids, which I mispronounce every <laughs> single year, named after a constellation that doesn't exist anymore. The Quadrantids can be a really good shower, meteor shower, but they tend to have a very sharp peak. Uh, so check it out the night of January 2nd to 3rd. Great news on the moon, new moon, so no moonlight to interfere. If you have a telescope, and you, can, and you check out Venus right now, it's going through uh, quite a, a phase, like the moon does. It's going through a phase. On to this week in space history. This I found interesting and coincidental, Matt. 42 years ago, December 24th, the same day that 
JWST, James Webb Space Telescope, is scheduled to launch. 42 years ago to the day was the first launch of the Ariane rocket. Now, that was, of course, the Ariane 1, and they are now on the Ariane 5, which will be launching JWST shortly after this comes out. On to Random Space Fact. As far as I can tell, I've only alluded to this before and never mentioned this just totally weird, freaky, freaky fact. Neutrinos. Lots of them put out by the sun, also by stars flying everywhere. About 100 trillion, 100 trillion, and maybe that's 10 trillion or 1 trillion, but 100 trillion pass through you every second. (laughs) There's so many of them, and they're so weakly interacting. Trillions of them are passing through us every second. The, The amount of time I've babbled has just been incomprehensible. One. And two, uh, hard to imagine how many have done that. 100 trillion here, 100 trillion there. Pretty soon, you've got a lot of neutrinos on your hands, or going through your hands, actually. I love that. Yeah, I've always loved that. I had an astrophysics professor who said, on average, a human will absorb one neutrino in their lifetime, and you die once. And he said, is that a coincidence? I think it, I think it is. Oh, come on. Correlation, not causality. <laughs> Are you saying there's a neutrino out there with my name on it? Yes. We call it Matt. <laughs> Matt Neutrino. That didn't make sense. Uh, let's move on to the trivia contest. Galileo, of course, discovered the four Galilean moons, which he did not name after himself, but others did, of Jupiter in 1610. I asked you, when was the next one discovered, and what moon was it? How do we do, Matt? Here is the answer from our poet laureate, Dave Fairchild, in Kansas. Amalthea is the moon that came in number five back in 1892, before Bruce was alive. The reddest object you will find in all our solar system, Galileo would have claimed, but sadly, he just missed him. (laughs) It's cute. I just thought that was amazing. It's right. Those four are so much larger. I just thought it was amazing that there were hundreds of years before the next one was discovered, and now there's known to be 80-ish. Here's our winner. Jean-Marc Bonnard in Switzerland. Man, we have listeners absolutely everywhere. Uh, Jean-Marc, I would love to deliver this on my own, uh, your Planetary Society kick asteroid, rubber asteroid, but uh, we'll just have to put it in the mail to you. Uh, congratulations on uh, on your win there, and uh, and thanks for listening. Most excellent. Congratulations. I found this fascinating as well, Matt, so I am sharing it as a trivia question, and I don't know why I'm using this voice. <laughs> the first trans-Neptunian object discovered was Pluto, of course, in 1930, so trans-Neptunians spending most of their time out beyond the orbit of Neptune, not counting moons of Pluto. When was the next trans-Neptunian object discovered, and what is it now named? Trans-Neptunian objects first found in 1930. When was the next found? And what is it that's not Sharon, moon of Pluto? You have until the 29th. That's December 29th, Wednesday, 8 a.m. Pacific time on that day, the 29th of December. And as promised, we have for the winner of this one, 
I'm holding it in my hand, all 720 pages, Discovering Mars, A History of Observation and Exploration of the Red Planet, William Sheehan and Jim Bell. You heard how much uh, I enjoyed the book, and I I bet you will too. So uh, good luck, and we're done. Everybody go out there, look in the night sky, and think of your favorite planetary pun. Thank you. I'm so flustered. Thank you, and good night. I'm all... Theocracy. No, never mind. Callisto, to, callisto tomorrow. Uh, no, you can listen today to uh, What's Up. You can listen anytime to uh, What's Up with the Chief Scientist of the Planetary Society. That's Bruce Betts. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California and is made possible by its members who love rolling across the sands of Mars. Mark Hilverda and Jason Davis are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra. <laughs>